Greetings, Free Talk Live listeners nationwide and online. I'm Gardner Goldsmith, here to begin our new connection of our Liberty Conspiracy and Free Talk Live Fridays. Get ready for this hour. White House says Israel will continue to kill innocent civilians in Gaza. And this is where we're going to be going in just a minute to John Kirby. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby said Tuesday that Israel will continue to hunt to hurt innocent civilians in its onslaught on Gaza. This is war. This is combat. This is bloody, ugly. This is his excuse, by the way. When someone asked him a question about the innocence, this is his response. When he was asked if the U.S. thought Israel's bombardment was a disproportionate response to the Hamas attack on southern Israel, his response was, oh, we don't have any control over that. This is war. This is combat, collateral damage. It's bloody ugly. You got to expect this. And again, this is the point. Even if you are an observer watching the Siamese fighting fish go after each other inside that fish tank, you don't have to be the one who helps handle the fish tank. You don't have to make it part of your possession. You don't have to add more Siamese fighting fish to it. You don't have to say, I am part of that. And you certainly don't have to include somebody else and throw him in there with them. That's the point. That is the point. He says, I wish I could tell you something different and wish that there was going to be uh, that there that there wasn't going to happen, that this wasn't going to happen. But it's going to happen. And that doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it dismissible. Mr. Kirby, you are supplying weapons to make it happen. That's the point. That's the question. That's why there's a big problem with this. So let's watch John Kirby via C-SPAN. I've got it queued up, folks. Here comes the first question out of the gate to John Kirby. We're going to watch portions of this. Stop it. Get your opinions like it's a classroom. You and I are all hanging out. Sometimes we're the teacher. Sometimes we're the student. We'll go back and forth on this. Here we go. Check it out. And uh, we're excited about it. Um, thanks, Queen. Thank you, Admiral. Um, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron um, called today for Hamas to be added to the uh, uh, targets of the U.S.-led coalition fighting the Islamic State group. Um, is that something that the, the White House would support? Well, we're just aware of these uh, reports uh, coming out uh, from uh, from uh, the OSA. Um, I would say, first and foremost, we're focused on helping Israel go after Hamas right now, making sure they got the capabilities and security assistance to go after Hamas. So he's not answering the question. He's delaying an answer on the question. Are you going to expand this? Are you going to back the expansion? And, of course, continue to fund this expansion. Um, and we're certainly in discussions with uh, our allies and partners, as you know. President More Trump. delay. We're talking about it. We're talking about it. You're not answering the question, John was on the call, uh, actually two calls that the president has had with European leaders in just the last uh, several days, and we'll, we'll continue those consultations. Okay, so I'm not going to answer your question. Thank you. Um, I have two questions. Amnesty International said that they found evidence that Israel used white phosphorus in Gaza. 
on any confirmation from the U.S. On so this. she says uh, evidence of the use of white phosphorus by Israelis, which we know has been documented in the past, going back four years. And so she says, uh, any comment about this? I cannot confirm that. Can't um, confirm. Just now, as you know, the U.N. Security Council had a meeting. The Arab groups uh, condemned killing civilians. But also said that uh, we should support a peace process instead of sending uh, weapons to Israel if you want to support Israel. Do you envisage, envisage a scenario whereby uh, the hostages will be released, uh, Hamas will be disarmed, and some kind of international conference will take place uh, soon? I couldn't begin to speculate on that. I, you know, uh, that, that's, uh, th- that, those are potential steps that haven't happened yet and, and may not happen. All I can tell you is we're going to continue to make sure Israel has the tools and the capabilities that they need to defend themselves. Again, okay, so we stop right there because this is the White House National Security Council Strategic Communications Coordinator, John Kirby, right? So he swears an oath to the Constitution, as you know, and what he just said there is patently, ridiculously, inflammatorily unconstitutional. And some of the reporters might ask him just once, can you cite for me the enumerated passage of the Constitution that grants you the so-called power to do this? We're not even going to go into whether you think that this piece of paper gives you moral power over other people to make them fund the construction and dissemination of these machines of death. We won't even discuss the immorality of that. Let's just talk about the little game you tell us you're going to play when you sign on to that rule book. Because it's not in there. And then she says, do you foresee a time when this can happen? Well, we are not really sure about that. But we're sure as heck going to keep funneling weapons of death. Doesn't matter. We're just going to do it. Unbelievable. We're going to continue to try to get that humanitarian assistance in. We're going to continue to try to get hostages and and people out of Gaza uh, appropriately. Uh, And as I think you've heard. As you know, it's very clear the indiscriminate bombing is such that the Israelis have clearly sent a message that hostage taking will not see a decrease in firing. It will not see any discrimination about firing. They're carpet bombing the place. And they don't care whether they kill civilians. But again, the point about this is, even if someone were to say, well, there is some sort of argument somehow that can be made that, well, we've got to do this so that we can protect future people. It's utterly absurd. It's utterly absurd. It's a consequentialist, immoral philosophy to say, well, some abstract people in the future will be protected by us slaughtering also the people that they held hostage. And it's really on their hands that we're taking the action to now go after them and, yes, kill the hostages. They've put them in front of, in front of themselves, so there's nothing we can do about it in our defense. That's not really a good defense. But the key, as I've mentioned, is not whether those people are making that decision, they're making the decision that you are implicated in their decision. The one thing, and again, I stress this, the one thing 
that a moral person who might be confused about that first portion of it can actually say in a very comfortable way, and you don't have to think too hard about it, John Kirby, is, you know what, John? I think it would be really cool if, as you guys all tried to figure out if it was okay to put the the uh, hostages at risk and innocent civilians who might have been, oh, I don't know, pushed in amongst the so-called terrorists in Hamas that have formerly been called the government of the Palestinians under the push by the Israelis to help them become the government under the push Bush uh, push by people like George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and uh, Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden to support Hamas as the government of the Palestinians in Gaza. So now uh, evidently you secretly thought that they were terrorists, which is part of the reason why you wanted them to be there so that they would be a cold front with whom the Israelis couldn't negotiate so the Israelis could constantly use them in brickbats to say, they're our enemies, we can't negotiate, so we're just going to have to push, push, push against them. Which did what? It pushed them in amongst all of the civilians. Now, it's possible that they would be hiding amongst the civilians, but this is inevitable. It's virtually impossible to distinguish between civilians and the, the terrorists they're searching for, right? The people who attacked. And you're not saying whether or not those people were prodded to act in the way that they acted because of prior actions against innocent civilians done by the Israelis. And you can go back and forth and back and forth, as I mentioned, all the way back to the plots in the 1840s to establish a Zionist state in that area. And if you want to use the Bible, then you can go all the way back to the Canaanites and ask Ben Shapiro, who doesn't believe that God helped Moses in the situation of the parting of the Red Seas, you can ask Ben Shapiro if, in that case, the Israelis should not be there and the Canaanites should be there. But this is the key, the moral principle of not involving someone who shouldn't have to be involved in deciding whether to put innocent people at risk to get the, the, the uh, alleged terrorists, the people who should be targeted, arrested, and tried. And again, they call them terrorists. Unless they emblematically are wearing something, how do you know? Unless they say, I am part of that group, how do you know they're terrorists? What if somebody's got a gun for self-defense and an Israeli soldier sees that person and says, terrorist? What if they've never been involved in terrorism? We don't know, right? That's what the whole judicial process is about. But the whole thing falls apart and it gets worse and worse and worse as these people funnel weapons to them and they make excuses for the deaths of civilians to which we're now connected. They tie us into it. Well, we don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to keep you forced to be attached to it. You don't have to attach me to killing those innocent kids who are standing in front of the terrorists. The terrorists are standing behind them. I don't have to be involved with that. Please leave me alone out of it. For us say um, a ceasefire right now really only benefits Hamas. Uh, that's where we are. Again, this is this is the thing that we've heard. Grace Curley said it. People at ADL are saying it. They're always constantly, it seems universally, saying that a ceasefire would see an existential threat to Israel. No, you know what's going to be an existential threat to Israel? What's going to be an existential threat to, to Israel 
is going to be something like what Douglas McGregor described. Them going in, carpet, continuing to carpet bomb the place with weapons that the United States helps provide with uh, potentially tens of billions of dollars next year providing in weapons that the the uh, Biden administration wants, in addition to more tens of billions of dollars and that $106 billion package they, they want for Ukraine, Taiwan, and Israel. And, of course, it's going to be probably passed very easily because Israel is part of that package. But McGregor says what you're doing is making this an existential threat for Israel. And it's going to become an existential threat for virtually everybody because it's going to turn into a world war. Because if Israel continues to push in and doesn't, doesn't, doesn't bring about a ceasefire, then rather than what you think, Mr. Kirby, by having a ceasefire, somehow Hezbollah and Iran and Lebanon, they're all going to come down and descend on Israel. No, what's going to happen is by not cease firing, they're going to drive more and more refugees to the Egyptian border, which they can't get out. They're going to wipe out more civilians and Hezbollah and the Lebanese and Iran potentially are going to be really in a big quagmire. And I think what might happen is someone's going to start attacking Israel. There could even be a false flag. You could see something happen in Syria, see Syria get involved. And then from that point on, those two aircraft carrier groups that the United States sent over for some reason, the CIA advisors that are on the ground, the troops that are on the ground, and Kirby will acknowledge that U.S. troops have been killed on the ground in Israel, you know, because it's constitutional. Oh, no, it's not. That's right. There's no declaration of war. They're not supposed to be out there. They're not even supposed to be called up. The militias members are supposed to be in their states. That's where they're supposed to be unless they're called up during a declaration of war. It's in the Constitution. I'll read you the California Constitution text probably tomorrow night. I mentioned it last night, and I'll put it out for you tomorrow. So we've got so much stuff to cover. We'll get to the California thing. I think you'll really dig it, not to be a tease, but I think you'll really find it very valuable to see the, the way that the perspective on the U.S. military has been warped and what the original perspective was, which I think you can assume. But seeing it in text is really valuable. It really lets you see that you're walking through the graveyard of all of the constitutional provisions that supposedly were put up. There's a tombstone for the Fourth Amendment. There's a tombstone for the declaration of war. We're walking through a gray landscape. And unfortunately, the ghosts of the founding fathers are speaking to us. It's very, very sad. So continuing with Mr. Kirby, the ghost of what? I don't know. Right now, and I, I understand the question, but I'm just not going to get ahead of where things are. So there's no scenario to avoid, to avert the war now. That was my point to you. There's no other scenario to avoid, to avert the There's war. already combat between Israel and Hamas. Uh, if what you're saying to avert a ground incursion, that is a question for the Israeli Defense Forces. They get to make the decisions about what operations they're going to conduct or not. So there you go. Again, I, I, and I, I know it's, it's repetitive. George W. Bush said it. We got to do it. We got to give them everything they need. And he's saying, essentially, we give them all the toys. They can do whatever the heck they want. I mean, it's just it's just the 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 absolute utter disrespect for you. It just it blows my mind. It, it, it It's amazing. Absolutely incredible. Just, you know, can you imagine? Oh, I don't know, say um, a group of malicious, dangerous people 
gathering up something deadly and saying, we know that there are a bunch of other people who are incentivized and driven. Let's say it's some poison. To go in and give this poison to people because they think that it's going to help whatever the future is going to be. Can you imagine allowing those people to do that? Oh, that's right. You know what I'm talking about. The jabs. Let's continue with Mr. Kirby. Uh, we don't believe that uh, a ceasefire right now um, is... is uh, what We would believe that a ceasefire right now is only going to benefit us. Yes. Okay, well... Um... Uh, uh, you know, okay, we'll continue. Watch this one. This is probably the last one, I think, before we have to head out and hit on another big thing because it's all tied together. There's some reporting overnight that the U.S. is planning for mass evacuations of Americans if the war were to spread. Can you kind of give context? To so they're talking about mass evacuations of Americans if the war were to spread, right? How likely you guys are viewing that scenario and, and whether this is very top level planning or if there's some sort of granular granular detail that you guys are going into on this hour i won't go into granular detail uh on operational planning one way or another but um it would be imprudent and irresponsible if we didn't have folks thinking through a broad range of contingencies and possibilities and um and uh and certainly evacuations are are one of those things i mean uh, uh there's not a place in the world where uh, the pentagon doesn't have contingency plans uh uh, on the shelf may need updating, but have them on the shelf to to help with the uh, the evac- evacuation of American citizens. Um, and given what's again there, okay, <laughs> this is ridiculous. There is nothing in the Constitution that allows for that. If you're going to some foreign country, you're going yourself. I shouldn't be forced to protect you. That's the way it works. Now. If there is a group of people who go after you and that foreign nation state isn't doing anything for extradition, that's a different story. Then they can call up letters of mark and reprisal and the president can hire mercenaries to go after those bad guys. But to have the contingencies for evacuation for everybody is ridiculous. But, you know, that's the government. So what can you do? Here we go going on in the middle east right now i think it's perfectly reasonable i think it would be imprudent and irresponsible if we weren't uh, doing some kind of contingency thinking but uh, we're not at a point of execution right now um and there are still plenty of opportunities for instance even in even in israel for people to get out we're still we're still doing contract charter flights and there's still commercial flights going in and out of ben Gurion. and frankly the demand signal for our contract charter flights hasn't been very high we're, they're still going but they're not all filled um, and the same could be said for uh, places like Lebanon. But um, but each each country is different, and the threats and challenges in each will will change over time. Um, and we're doing all the right prudent thinking that you you would expect us to. I, I know that we've um, that you've thanked Qatar for its role in helping to secure the release of some of the hostages so far. But I was wondering if the U.S. believes that Qatar should expel the Hamas leaders that are in the country right now. Uh, I, I don't think uh, there it is. That's the one. So we're just going to go back a second here. Check this out. This is very valuable, very revealing about how they really feel about Hamas and Qatar and Israel and the civilians. 
care the release of some of the hostages so far, but I was wondering if the U.S. believes that Qatar should expel the Hamas leaders that are in the country right now. I, I don't think, uh, well, I'll just say we're, uh, we're having conversations with, with partners across the region, um, and, uh, and we know that Qatar has uh, an open line of communication with Hamas, um, and as you saw. No, no, no. It's more than that. Qatar has been cited in giving aid to Hamas the way that the United States was ready to, again, give aid to Hamas, the way the Israeli government gave aid to Hamas, the way the U.S. government formally gave aid to Hamas. So John Kirby isn't giving all the information about Qatar's relationship with Hamas, is he? Clearly, he's not. So when you have a guy answering questions in that way, where he doesn't provide complete information about the ties between the government of Qatar and Hamas, and yet they're all talking about terrorism and terrorism, I thought, if you weren't with us, you're with the terrorists, right? I thought it was bad to support and harbor terrorists. And yet, the nation state of Qatar is getting an out from the nation state of the United States, which is so concerned about Israelis, right? Sure. Partners across the region, um, and, uh, and we know that Qatar has uh, an open line of communication with Hamas. Um, and as you saw, we thank Qatar for, for their support and helping get those two Americans out. I would just tell you that those discussions and uh, and those conversations are ongoing and, and, and critically important, and I think I need to leave it at that. Thanks, Admiral. Uh, President, former President Obama shared some of his views about the conflict yesterday. One of the things he said was that uh, the Israelis haven't done enough to avoid killing or injuring civilians as they seek to take out Hamas in Gaza. Does President Biden share that view? President Biden has since the very beginning of this conversation, uh, been talking to the prime minister and we have been talking to Israelis at uh, various levels, at the cabinet level and below, um, about the, what, what separates us from Hamas as two democracies. And that's respect for human life. That's abiding by the law of war. That's by doing. <laughs> they, they bandy the rhetoric around so much. We'll be back with more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. It's great to be with you. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases, but Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction and its features ensure Dash is undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible, and its network is protected from 51% attacks by their Chainlocks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering a Dash transaction complete, so it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya protocol and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Big thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org. 
Welcome, fellow conspirators for freedom. I'm Gardner Goldsmith, and this is the Liberty Conspiracy, because freedom is out of fashion nowadays. Connecting with Free Talk Live, we invite you to listen and to join us live for Liberty Conspiracy every Monday through Friday at Rumble and Rockfin. You can always find our audios after the fact. To talk about the manipulation of the message. So, in order to go back to the war machine, I want to go back to John Kirby's appearance at the White House and point something out to you. So, I want to go back here to these questioners and just make sure that I play this right. Okay, here we go. This is that man who asked about people on the ground, soldiers, things like that. We already got the fatuous way that John Kirby answered these questions about uh, civilians. Just incredible stuff. Now ah, you got to break some eggs, essentially, is what he's saying. Sort of like Stalin, like Lenin, right? Here's a little more, because this is, I think, very key. And it brings us a larger lesson, not about the immediate, not necessarily about the immediate thing, but it's universal. It's long-term intellectual ammunition. I think I got it cued right. Here we go. We haven't seen any trucks go in. We'll see. We'll see what the hours to come bring. One quick follow-up again on a separate topic here. Broadly speaking, we know the Israeli War Cabinet has been meeting with the Prime Minister, the the President, and others have spoken to members of that Cabinet often. The President and Netanyahu often. Is the President confident that the Israeli War Cabinet, led by the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, will do the right thing as he views it in carrying out this war? He is confident that we are going to keep doing what we need to do to get. Israel the capabilities that it needs. Uh, he's, the, the, the war cabinet can speak for themselves. Prime Minister Netanyahu can speak for his government. I hear you saying the, that he has confidence in Netanyahu and that war cabinet to lead this war efforts to the U.S. It's not, it's not our place to decide the competency of the unity government that Prime Minister Netanyahu put in place. That's for him to speak to and for his cabinet officials. The president left Tel Aviv confident that he had the opportunity to be candid and forthright with Prime Minister Netanyahu privately and with the war cabinet writ large, and that he had the opportunity to ask them the the hard questions that he wants them to be asking themselves uh, before they start some sort of major ground offensive. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Kirby, I wanted to get a sense. Um, There have been a speed of attacks um, on U.S. forces in the region, and can you characterize the threat that the U.S. faces in the region right now as Israel um, poises itself to invade Gaza? And then I have a question about Australia. Uh, We remain deeply concerned by the potential for future attacks on our our troops. As you're right, we've seen, and I'm I'm guesstimating here, but it's about a dozen over the last several days. Um, And as a result, tragically, one uh, U.S. contractor died as a result of a heart attack from sheltering. U.S. contractor died from sheltering. So it wasn't 12. It was, I, I hope I didn't misspeak there. Um, they have uh, 12 reports and one man has died. He's a contractor. Don't forget, he's a contractor using your tax money. But watch this next bit. This is where the lesson comes in. Wait till we draw this out. I think you'll find it interesting. I hope you find it interesting and worthwhile. And, uh, and I think uh, it will stand as good intellectual ammo. Uh, so... It's uh, potentially a dangerous environment, and we're taking it very, very seriously. The, our commanders on the ground have the right to defend themselves and their troops and can take the appropriate and are taking the appropriate force protection uh, uh, measures. Okay, let's stop it right there. 
So, immediately, I think that's such an easy thing to accept. Our commanders on the ground. First of all, there's that question of why are you saying our commanders and why that ground? Because that's immoral, forcibly inclusive, our, you're part of it. And on what ground? Oh, that ground over there where there's no declared war, so they're not supposed to be there. Second, and this is the one that slips by people a lot. As difficult, not difficult, as uncomfortable as it might make people feel. His statement about they have the right to defend themselves. Actually doesn't apply to what's really going on. And the reason it doesn't is because as individuals, we all have the right to defend ourselves, right? The question is, if you are the recipient of stolen goods and arms and ammunition that you didn't buy, but that got purchased and made through criminal activity, do you then have a right to use those things to defend yourself? Or are you the recipient of stolen goods and a criminal holding something that doesn't belong to you? Your right to self-defense does not include being able to take somebody else's knife away from him. Because you're harming his ability to defend himself. You have engaged in aggression against him. Those soldiers on the ground have rights to defend themselves with their own weapons, with their own fists, with stones and rocks, whatever they can acquire themselves through their own moral action. They do not have any right to defend themselves through items that were acquired through criminal means. There, people don't go to the end of the logic chain here because oftentimes they accept this statist terminology. This, They're on the team and they're there, so they're doing the work of the team. So the least we can do is allow them to defend themselves. So again, we can ask this question. If they don't have sufficient means to defend themselves through what the government has given them, these soldiers, then what will the government, what is it going to do in order to give them more? What, in what will it engage? There you go. So they don't have the right to, def they're not defending themselves with any sort of application of natural rights by using the arms that were acquired illegitimately. They are the recipients of stolen goods. And if they don't have enough from those stolen goods, then we can see what the process actually is even more clearly with greater stark clarity. Let me know if you think I'm right. Rockfin, Rumble, thanks for the chat, y'all. Good to have you there, everybody. Now let's check out what you've got to say. Over at Rumble, Audi says Reagan sucked. The deficit tripled on his watch. Absolutely. He was in favor of full amnesty for illegal aliens and the no liability protection of vax manufacturers happened during his administration. That vax thing, so important for people to remember. He didn't have control of a lot of his guys either. It was just so massive. It's ridiculous. 
Let's head over to Rumble and see what's happening in Rumble. Hey, thanks for being there, Rogue Statesman. He came over because Rockfin was freezing up on him. Thanks. And Freegan's there. Very good. All right, everybody. We've got that, hopefully, lesson that I think is worthwhile. This statement that the soldiers over there, even if they were there under a constitutionally declared war, that they have the right to defend themselves. Yes, they have the right to defend themselves, but we have to understand what is actually them defending themselves versus being the recipient of criminally acquired goods. You know, a mafioso who's buying guns with or stealing stealing somebody's handgun from their from their house he, he doesn't have a right to use that gun to defend himself especially if he's going into somebody another person's house and that person's trying to defend himself right or he's walking into a conflict between two long battling mafioso families right and i won't say that it's completely analogous here I want to show you some very, very good stuff from Russell Brand. This is a a break away from a slight turn from what we've been discussing about speech. The Epic Times work, Matt Taibbi's work, NewsGuard, and the rhetoric of Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and John Kirby. And now I want to show you a different dimension of it to show you how that money Also, and I mentioned some of these advisors, how that money also gets funneled or the ideologies also pop up out on pop media. And they come thanks to the amazing government funded military contractors, just like we saw from pharma. Here's Russell Brand from today. Can't show you all of it, but I think you'll dig it. Here we go. The horrific and escalating conflict in the Middle East continues to claim more human lives. So who do the legacy media turn to to get an unbiased perspective on that? Those patriots who have undisclosed ties to the military industrial complex who will profit from this war. We need truth now more than ever, or at least as close as we can get to unbiased reporting. Like right now, for example, let me tell you plainly, I do not profit from Raytheon or Lockheed Martin's actions. So when I talk about this horrific escalating conflict, the loss of human lives across the spectrum, the tragedy for people, no matter what your religious or spiritual alliances are, you know that I'm not making any money selling missiles. And I think that gives me a degree of clarity that none of the people you're about to see that the legacy media turn to are able to offer you. Have a look at this montage. Each one of these apparent experts has a tie to either Raytheon or Lockheed Martin or someone else. They don't declare that. And when the legacy media are saying, what should we do? And do you think the solution to this problem should involve expensive artillery and weapons? They usually say, yeah, I think it should. And you don't have any personal investment in that, do you? Oh, they literally do. Have a look. Jeremy, I I thought this might be the most significant foreign trip by U.S. president. I want to bring in Leon Panetta, formerly the U.S. Secretary of Defense under President Obama. Ambassador Dennis Ross, former special envoy to the Middle East. Former CIA Director John Brennan. Uh, you've worked in national security, you've worked in the field. You'll notice that none of those people disclose their ties to those military industrial complex companies that take 50% of your tax dollar defense budget. Let's get into this in a little more depth. 
The world witnessed the modern high point of the American presidency when President Joe Biden visited and spoke in Israel on October 18th. At least that was the take offered by Jeremy Bash, national security analyst for the liberal cable news network MSNBC. It was absolutely the finest hour by any president I've seen in a long, long time, Bash said Wednesday on the show Deadline White House. Next, he suggested that Hamas may have directly targeted the Al-Ali Arab Hospital in the Gaza Strip, where an explosion killed hundreds of Palestinians last week. I wouldn't put it past them, given what their record is and their use of human shields, he said. As of now, experts are still trying to determine responsibility for the bombing. You are aware that this is perhaps the most contentious conflict in the world, maybe in world history. And uniquely at this time, it's come into a kind of conversational global crisis where people are unable to communicate openly without feeling the pressure to take sides. Even making this content now, I know that some of you will want absolute support for Israel. Others will want absolute support for Palestine. It's very difficult for us to offer you a take that's about the American military industrial complex profiting from this conflict, potentially escalating this conflict, not because it's best for humanitarian reasons, patriotic reasons, reasons of alliance, the future of the Middle East, support for Israel, the best thing to do for the people of Gaza. No, what's possibly motivating a significant portion of the trajectory and agenda around how to handle this conflict are undisclosed ties to military industrial complex or organizations. And if that's not part of the story, why are each of these pundits, when they're on legacy media, not saying, I should tell you, first of all, I work with Raytheon. I should tell you, first of all, I work with Lockheed Martin. This conflict is complicated enough where everyone on social media feels a pressure to say, I stand with X or I am against Y. And actually, really, the truth is we are all human beings. And if there's one thing we can extract from this, shouldn't it be anybody profiting from this? situation. A single missile being launched with the motivation being anything other than, well, this is what's best for world peace. This is what's best for the people of either this side or that side. It is so complicated. And across social media spaces, you will find people powerfully advocating for either side. You will find incredible pressure. Let me know if you feel it too, to find a fealty, a strong sense of alliance with this side or that side. What we feel obliged to do, because we are really interested in finding a way out of this devastating, terrible conflict that is claiming human lives, children being lost, devastation, murder, mayhem, whoever you are, whatever your alliance is, we feel that one thing we could do is look at people that claim to be speaking rationally when in fact they are advocating for profiteering without even disclosing it. The legacy media should not be showcasing the voices of Raytheon and Lockheed Martin without telling you plainly that's what they're doing. I would say more important than their opinion on how this crisis should be handled is what their relationship is with the Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, considering that these organizations spend millions lobbying and earn billions bombing. At no point did MSNBC mention that Bash, who served as chief of staff at the Central Intelligence Agency in the Department of Defense in the Obama administration, leads a consulting firm that has reportedly worked for defense contracting giant Raytheon, which supplies missiles for Israel's Iron Dome defense system. Remember, if you have a strong affiliation to Israel, if you are Israeli, if you are Jewish, I am not saying that you don't have the right to your emotional experience right now. Who the hell am I to comment on that? Where I do feel qualified to pontificate is should Jeremy Bash 
former CIA head, current member of consulting firm that reportedly works with Raytheon, be pretending to be, well, not even neutral, offering advocacy without declaring profiteering, which I think, if you take away your personal alliances, has informed almost every conflict in the last hundred years, and perhaps is the primary motivation for all wars. There is enough historic complexity in that region without the intercession of profiteering, without a legacy media not the declaring their true motivation, true alliances, and where they're getting their information from. The episode is part of a broader recurring pattern in corporate TV news. In recent weeks, MSNBC, NBC, CNN, and Fox News have regularly invited on former defense officials turned industry consultants to explain the conflict between Israel and Palestine without ever mentioning to viewers that these analysts may represent clients with a financial stake in matters being discussed. Wouldn't you want to know if you were being offered a solution to a problem that the person that's offering you that solution has a vested interest in a particular outcome. If you have three Pepsis and drink one, how much more refreshed are you? Pepsi? Partial credit. Doesn't it make you consider more broadly that America's role in the world is supplying weapons often to both sides of a conflict, that you have people in Congress investing in weapons firms during this conflict, the legacy media have people that work for weapons firms talking to you during the conflict. Do you think that's helping us to get an unbiased assessment? As we try to tiptoe through this tragedy, that lives are being lost continually, unnecessarily, certainly it doesn't appear to be leading to a solution, one might argue, don't you want to ensure that the information you're getting is the best possible information from the best possible people? How else are we ever going to achieve anything other than endless ongoing war? Hmm, endless ongoing war. I wonder if anyone would benefit from an endless ongoing war. I wonder if our intensity and willingness to take sides would benefit any of these interests that sell arms all around the world, often to both sides, turn up on your TV set, advocating for war without declaring those investments, have a Congress full of people that are supposed to be representing you while investing in those weapons company, having accepted lobbying money from those weapons companies, Companies while they work within a party that accepts donations from those weapons companies. That seems to me like a 360 dome that's worth interrogating. In the days after Hamas's attack on Israel, MSNBC had for a moment quietly taken three of its Muslim broadcasters out of the anchor's chair since Hamas's attack on Israel, according to the online news outlet Semaphore. By contrast, the network has repeatedly brought on Bash, whom Biden last year appointed to an intelligence advisory board to contextualize the ongoing war to viewers. Here's some context. Wars are actually quite a good thing. What about these dead Israeli babies and these dead Palestinian babies? That's all bad, and you could decide which ones are worse for yourself. But what I will tell you is, look at my stocks and shares. Isn't that going to cheer you up? I'm trying to cheer up. I just keep I keep looking at the dead babies. Look at the stocks and shares. Mm, the dead babies is a haunting image. We shouldn't have showed you those dead babies. Is there any particular type of dead baby that would cheer you up while I focus on my stocks and shares? I suppose I've been programmed to appreciate these dead babies more. Oh. Focus on that then, because I make money either way. Bash isn't the only defense industry consultant being invited on TV to explain the conflict between Israel and Palestine. I mean, one's already bad, isn't it? You want no one. This is so difficult, isn't it? It's so complicated. Can we just have no one who's making any money from this involved in the reporting? No, we're going to have several. 
The networks have also been calling on some of Bashi's colleagues at the Washington, D.C.-based consultant firm Beacon Global Strategies, where he is a managing director and partner. On a personal note, I feel somewhat offended that the mainstream media feel entitled to conduct moral witch hunts when in their own reporting and investigating, this is how they actually behave. While Beacon does not disclose its clients, the firm has worked with Raytheon as well as the Israeli surveillance firm NSO Group, according to reports from the New York Times. We can't continue to bring you complex and hopefully enjoyable, let me know in the chat, content like this without our supporters. And what incredible supporters we have. We love you and we love them. We need all of you. Sat123.com make this thing. And thankfully, with this little guy, we could all stay connected together, potentially forever. Because self- Right. So obviously, he's going to go through his ad and so on and so forth. Just going to go ahead a little bit here, because I want to see some more from Jacobin, because it's a very left wing group. And I know some people, you know, Russell Brand, oh, he hasn't explicitly come out as a Christian, although recently I've been hearing uh, speak a lot more uh, about Christ as his Lord and Savior, which is very interesting. And, you know, his old tattoos and stuff like that from his wild days and, and, and his background and his life that he's really, really turned around a lot. But uh, the stuff he says so often, he's really fighting on the good side. And I want to get this information out and I want to give him the benefit of the doubt in so many cases. Uh, so want to continue here with the Jacobin piece and then uh, show you something else that I put together uh, probably over a year ago that I think you might find interesting, coordinating with uh, Jimmy Dore's people, not coordinating, but uh, working off them, bouncing off of them. Leon Panetta, who served as CIA director, served as a top 50. OK, let's get back to this complex content. On October the 12th, Fox News interviewed Beacon Managing Director and Partner Michael Allen, who served as a top National Security Council official under President George W. Bush. CNN also interviewed Beacon Senior Counselor Leon Panetta, who served as CIA Director and Secretary of Defense under President Barack Obama. While we are all good as tribalized creatures with a deep, long, long history, perhaps longer than we ever imagined or history reports, have lived with natural alliances with groups that we feel affiliation because our survival and their survival are completely entwined. It's clear from that little list that whether you're Republican or Democrat, pro-Bush or pro-Obama, left All right, there's a little group of intersecting, crossing over folks making a lot of money and making a lot of noise, generally advocating for further conflict on either and both sides, porously moving between media, defense, government, corporatization, effortlessly and endlessly. Meanwhile, down here in the dirge, we all sort of wave flags and squabble with one another about particular advocacy. And as I've said many times, I understand that if you are personally affected by this, of course, I'm in no position to judge your alliances. I wouldn't dream of it. But surely we can agree that having a system where people profiteer and sit in different chairs, in different hats, advocating usually for more war and more expenditure isn't the best way to solve these heartbreaking global problems. Neither Fox nor CNN noted it was interviewing executives at Beacon and chose only to identify them by their former government title. All right. So with that stated, let's take the opportunity to go over to a video that I put together back in, uh, geez, when was it? May 24th of 2022. You can find this on the BitChute Liberty Conspiracy channel, which doesn't have all the videos over there, but it has a lot. And uh, you can check that out because it starts off with some good stuff from Jimmy Dore, and then uh, which they got from a friend of theirs. 
uh, a comedian who put together some of these connections. Here we go. So Matt Orfala, friend of the show, Matt Orfala, now works with Matt Taibbi, and he put together this fantastic video. Uh, Let's watch it. So can the U.S. deliver the heavy weapons? The U.S. has contributed, I think, nearly $2 billion in aid militarily, economic, uh, since this war began. Can the U.S. be doing more? The most important thing right now is the weapons, weapon systems, the weapons they need. They need to have stingers and the javelins, but they also need anti-aircraft uh, uh, capabilities. They need anti-missile capabilities. They need anti-tank uh, capabilities. There's a lot of weapon systems the weapons they need. We have to bring these weapons. So they have the weapons for the Ukrainians. These weapon systems are delivered to the weapon systems. Hi, I'm Derek J. I don't want a politician to represent me. To me, Government is the idea that one group of people can coerce everyone to comply with an edict or face increasing punishments up to and including death. Despite perhaps the most noble of intentions, the best government services are a far cry from what could be provided for by voluntary interactions. Besides, the people who call themselves the government wage wars and put peaceful people in jail for crimes involving no victims. If Starbucks used some of its money to drop bombs, I wouldn't shop there. So why would I support the American empire? The empire does not require my consent. Derek J's Victimless Crime Spree. You can order your copy of the Director's Cut DVD now at VictimlessCrimeSpree.com. Greetings, Free Talk Live listeners nationwide and online. I'm Gardner Goldsmith, here to begin our new connection of our Liberty Conspiracy and Free Talk Live Fridays. Get ready for this hour, Halloween style. Wayne McCroy, coming up. I just love McCoy's face on that. Let's talk to our next guest. He is, of course, the man that you can find on Rockfin digging so deep into the esoteric and the occult symbology of things, the events, the symbols on packages, the stories, the movies. He is Wayne McCoy. Wayne, great to see you again, man. How you doing? Doing good, guard. Glad to be uh, speaking to you again here. Evil Spock hey, approved. This is- 
Yes, yes. I'll give you the old Vulcan uh, symbol thing, which I guess is like an old Jewish thing. I don't know what it, I don't know. But uh, I guess Leonard Nimoy like opened his eyes at some Jewish ceremony. You saw some of the guys doing that. Thanks for joining us, man. And, you know, the subject for tonight is a fascinating one, but your show is always so fascinating. Tell people where they can find you. Well, that's I just set up a brand new website, so everything's all centralized from there now. So it's www.alchemicaltechrevolution.com. So that should make it nice and easy for people to find me. Well, I'm going to go searching for that right now. www.alchemicaltech.com. Let me see if I typed it right. I'm pretty bad. Hey! Oh, mate, I don't think I did it right. No, it's alchemicaltechrevolution.com. Oh, because I'm an idiot. There you go. Okay. Yeah, it's up there. I have all the the latest podcast episodes and everything are up on there. Links for. Wow, this is gorgeous. Holy moly. Look at this thing. Wow, dude. Boy, you really went to town. Yeah, it's been in the works for quite a while. So I have it all set up and good to go now. And I have links to everything there. So it's all good. So people could find my work there. And I do talk about the esoteric and the occult quite a bit because there's so much of that that goes on in our world that gets overlooked by people. Well, what I like also is you're able to blend the breaking stories, the news stories in with such a depth of history that, you know, and, um, you know, I've been in multiple people conversations with you, Billy Ray, Tony and all the guys. And, um, you come in with such stuff and you see things that the only other person I've seen who can do this is uh, the esoteric detective Ed from New Zealand. And uh, he's the guy who um, you probably familiar with how he looked at the Pope's conference hall and realized it looked like a snake, both on the interior and exterior. And that got him a ton of traction on YouTube. Right. I'm familiar with that. I, I never heard of him, actually, though. So that's, yeah. that's you will have to check out his work. Yeah, he's still on YouTube. Amazingly, he's got the outer light and he also used to do the outer dark. And that's where uh, he got a lot of traction with that video. And then he sort of went away for a little while and he's back and he's in New Zealand and he just goes crazy with all the jab stuff and all that stuff. He's he's gone very, very underground like he uses as untraceable tech as possible and stuff like that. Your website, alchemicaltechrevolution.com, Wayne. Awesome. How long have you been doing this, by the way, uh, putting this information on the internet? Well, I've actually, uh, even though I've been researching these topics for a good part of my adult life now, I'm going on 20 some years of really deep research into a lot of this stuff. But publicly, I never really came out with anything public until 2017. It's when I published my first book and didn't start doing podcasting or anything of the sort until more recently than that. And honestly, I've only been doing this full time for a little under two years now. So um, it's it's really a lifetime's worth of research and and putting it all together here. Uh, So, yeah, there's the links to my books. Uh, So. That's another the thing. Demic of Pan, Breaking the Natural Order, The Alchemical Tech Revolution, Cybernetic Messiah, Autism Epidemic, and Autism AI and the Singularity. Oh, this is great. I hope we get some folks to uh, check you out. And it's M-C-R-O-Y. And, of course, as we mentioned, they can head over to your new awesome website, Alchemical Tech Revolution. 
And you are also on Rockfin. And if people right. are interested and they like what you're doing, they can hit you up, drop you a, t- uh, a tip, a, uh, you know, some some cash donation, that sort of thing as well. Absolutely. It's always much appreciated if they do so. Uh, they can find me on Rockfin or I'm on Spotify or all the podcast platforms now, too. Awesome. And I know you have paid subscriber capacity at your website, I see, right? Yeah, people could go over there and actually it's hosted through Spotify. So that's where they would be paying for the subscription links to is through Spotify. So that's all set up and good to go. And you can subscribe there. And I have how I actually um, work. This is I have a free episode I publish every week. And then there's also a paid member episode that goes up every week. And I've also been running bonus episodes of my Alchemical Lantern live show that I do usually on Friday nights. Now that's going to be launching exclusive with free world FM coming up very soon yeah, too. It's going to be awesome. And Bill so has been working so hard on that. Yeah. It's, it's been a long time in the works and they've encountered some, some different holdups along the way, but we're just about there. And I think we'll be launching within the next couple of weeks now. With that's going to be good. Hey, so Wayne, you know, I come at this as, a person who's always enjoyed Halloween as a kid, you know, whether it was the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown or getting dressed up, telling spooky stories and stuff. And then as I got older, I sort of, you know, lost interest in Halloween and things. Then you, you start to hear about occultic roots of Halloween. You kind of heard about that as a kid. You said, Oh, maybe some of the stuff I was scared about as a kid really actually some, actually has some ties to real things in history. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I used to enjoy listening to Night on Bald Mountain, that sort of thing, you know. Um, Can you tell us where there are some things to keep in mind about Halloween as far as its occultic roots, its esoteric roots, and things we might be seeing nowadays, the date, the symbology, that sort of stuff for folks? Oh, absolutely. Uh, There's a rich history to what we celebrate as Halloween now. And, of course, it's known as All Hallows' Eve. And this was actually a holiday set up uh, by the Christian church. I think it was sometime in the 16th century, I want to say, where they they moved a celebration called All Saints Day from May 1st to uh, November 1st. And there's connections there that go back into the occult as well and into the earlier mystery schools and a lot of the pagan religious ceremonial things. That occur because May 1st is a high holiday for many pagans. That's known as Beltane. And of course, we have November 1st and of course, October 31st, Halloween, how we knew it, we see it today, which is the eve of All Saints Day in the old Catholic Church. Well, we have this celebration going from the night, the evening, going from October 31st into November 1st that correlated back to a Celtic holiday called Samhain, and it's spelled like Samhain, S-A-M-H-A-I-N. It's pronounced Samhain, though, and that's an interesting thing, and that goes back to Celtic and Scottish language, and there's a whole mythology that goes along with this. So these are the origins of where our modern Halloween holiday come from, and it's got some dark undertones to it if you want to go down that rabbit hole here well if you want to pick up any of those threads go for it and i'll just tell you wayne sam hayne as the people would call it in the publishing industry and so on sowing publishing was the company that offered me a contract for one of my novels and i declined the contract because they wanted me to split 
my public political work from my writing name. And I said, well, I'm not going to do that. Why, why would I do that? And uh, so I, I disconnected from them. And so I'm familiar with the terminology. You know, did I did a little research and I knew, you know, people had told me beforehand. Um, so I'm glad I didn't connect with them. Yeah. So, uh, well, basically, Sam, Sam Hain, Sawin, the word Sawin, it's derivative, the etymology of it. It simply means summer's end. So this was actually the New Year's celebration for the Celtic people. November 1st, they celebrated as the New Year. And this was going into what they called the dark season or the dark time. And in celebration thereof, they had some ritualistic type things that they had done at that point. Because during this time, when we're going back, there was a king there named King Tigernmus who wound up making offerings to a god called Krom Kruak in the old Celtic traditions here. So this Krom Kruak basically was a fertility and sun god, if you want to look at it from what our modern perspective would say, what the mainstream his history community would say about it. Wayne, right, so if I could, um, would these be considered druidic rituals or just Celtic, uh, traditional Irish Celtic rituals? Um, and, in, and, and in some cases, there were Celtic peoples, even in the Midlands up to uh, northern England. Right. Well, this this crossed the bounds of Ireland, Scotland, all of the northern regions there. And it did permeate into the larger culture, but it did start as Druidic rites. So they had this god that they, they venerated called Krom Kruak. And every Samhain, that would be Halloween... They would sacrifice the birth, one of the firstborn children of the community to this god by bashing their head against a stone idol of the god. And that's where we actually get this notion of the jack-o'-lantern from, because these families who would sacrifice their firstborn children to this god for a, a fair harvest in the upcoming year, they would carve out, originally it was a turnip, they would carve out a face on a turnip and make a lantern out of it. And this is where the jack-o'-lantern symbol comes from. And that's why we carve pumpkins today. So they would set that out on their stoop so that the spirits, the wandering spirits that serve this god, Krom Kruak, would pass by their house and, you know, give favor to their family and to their, their farmlands and their works during that time because they did sacrifice their child to Krom Kruak. Do you and have any back. idea on when they stopped the murderous practice? I don't know. That's, that's open for debate. I mean, I, I know that a lot of that dates back to 16th century texts and stuff where they talk about yeah. that. Uh, so, I mean, it goes back a long time. And there, there's more explanations as to this because during this time of year, this, this New Year's celebration going into the dark time, of course, this always aligns with like the solstices and equinoxes and things like that. So this was going into the fall. So this was a celebration. This is where they split off their New Year in that tradition. So the New Year started with the dark time or the dark season, as they like to call it, the dark period. And they would make these sacrifices to ensure a plentiful bounty come the, the light times, which started there, you know, on May 1st, that Beltane, the other side of that. Uh, so that was celebrating the birth of summer and the death of summer, pretty much, in their system. So they had this tradition that during this time, during this one day of Samhain and the also Beltane, they say similar things about it. This is where the veil between the, our world and the spirit world becomes very thin. And they had a tradition that 
Sometimes the ghosts or spirits of their dead relatives could come back to visit and offer either, you know, some beneficial type of an energetic principle to their homes, or if they had some type of a grudge against somebody, they could seek their revenge in this way. So during this time, what the tradition was is that you had wandering spirits around. And in order to scare off or confuse these wandering spirits or to not make them recognize you, they would put on costumes or disguises or masks. And that's where we get the tradition of dressing up. Uh, so we have all of these different connections that go back to this. Do you know whether or not, for example, if you take something like the Wicker Man or some of the symbology uh, that Alison Goldfrapp has put forward or some of the folk horror things where they would um, they would combine human elements and animal elements, you know, a buck or uh, an owl's head, uh, that sort of thing uh, for the masks with was that is that part of it would that be kind of one of the mask things or do you have any idea what the masks would be or, or is it really just any kind of mask well the whole history of the mask even goes back even further than this there, there's a lot there and that's a whole other show uh but uh, at any rate yeah we have essentially what the tradition holds during this druidic type celebration or celtic celebration because it later became popularly celebrated throughout all the culture there and of course, we have it still today uh, in a transformed type of a state, but it's still basically the same things. They would put on these masks or these costumes in order to confuse the spirits so that they wouldn't recognize them. So if they had, like, say, a malevolent spirit coming back from the dead to try to harm them in some way or seek their revenge, they wouldn't recognize the person. So they, they would dress up this way and they would wander around and oftentimes they would sing songs and they would go about collecting uh, for like food and stuff like that for the Samhain celebration, for the community Samhain celebration. So they would go door to door collecting food. And that's where we get the tradition of going door to door and saying trick or treat and collecting candy. And of course, later on, it developed into this whole thing where they would pull pranks on people if they didn't make their donation to the celebration. So we have all those traditions come directly from this and like I said, I mean, there's kind of some dark undertones to a lot yeah. of it. People don't realize it. I mean, a lot of people think it's a harmless holiday. Okay, it's fun. But it crosses over with a lot of other things. It crosses over with this All Saints Day that we talked about earlier. Because what that is, is that's a day that the Catholic Church celebrated the death of the saints. And we have like Dia de los Muertos. Uh, the Day of the Dead celebrations, that all crosses over. It's the same basic premise where the spirits of your dead relatives from the past can actually, because the veil is thin on that day, they can actually manifest in some way. And some traditions, some people still will like set a place at the table for this dead relative or something like that. And these traditions date back to this in particular, this celebration of Samhain in particular by the Celts. And actually, you can probably trace it back further than that, because there's a lot of this that ties back to some of the old Saturnalian type doctrines and things that they did way back then. Uh, I haven't found like the direct connection to the Druids or the Celts from that, but it's got to be there somewhere. And when I find it, I'll let you know. But uh, we have all these celebrations that derive from the same type of manifestation of spirit in certain ways. So even if it crosses time and culture, what we have now, it's kind of the same thing, a package deal together. So we, we celebrate this stuff not knowing the roots of it. And the roots of it are kind of dark. 
Wayne. Uh, oh, our guest, folks, is Wayne McRoy. And you can find the new website, Alchemical Tech Revolution. And, of course, find Wayne under his name, Wayne McRoy, on Rockfin. And you can head over from the alchemicaltechrevolution.com website to check out all the links, the books, all these things. Absolutely fascinating stuff, Wayne. And, and by the way, it's great to see you. It's really good to see you, dude. I really appreciate you being here. This is yeah, man. I appreciate you having me on. It's It's been a while. We haven't talked in a bit. And I know yeah. there's different reasons for that, but it's yeah. all good. That's oh, awesome, man. And, and let me ask you, you know, when you talk about the uh, the Druidic... I remember doing some research for a book that I based in Bath, England. And as you know, the Druids were originally the ones who settled in the Bath area. They looked at the waters as being being healing waters. There was this whole legend about a prince who had leprosy, went to Bath, England, and rolled around in the mud like the pigs did because he saw the pigs that were healing up in the mud and he his leprosy got cured. And then the Romans came in and they put uh, there was there was already a druidic cultic connection they replaced the druidic cultic connection in bath with their own uh temple to minerva i think and uh, they created the druidic hot spas and then when the romans left the british kings would go there and recreate and so on and so forth and so i placed a story there and i did a lot of research on the druids and i found out you know the title is men of the oak i think for the druids or something like that and I, I'm fascinated because I know that the Druids held on to a lot of the old learning, like Euclidean geometry and things like that. Do you think that that was because of their interest in alchemical stuff and it, you know, they got interested in that as it was brought up? Or were there other reasons for that? And also, if you want to attach this, did they sacrifice the children at that time because they thought that that in addition to the end of the summer season going into the darkness, but they be, it went, went parallel to that idea that the film between our world and the netherworld was thinnest then. And that's why they did it. I know it's a lot of questions, but um, you know, whatever you want to address. Yeah, that certainly seems to be the case when the veil is thin. That's when these types of, ceremonies or these types of uh, things that they do in those cases, they have more efficacy according to those people who claim to know stuff about this, stuff about the occult and magic and all of these things that interconnect. And of course, we have all of these connections within the various secret society groups, and it's no different with the Druids. They were uh, in and of themselves their own type of secret society group, and they still exist today. Just so you know, uh, the queen who just passed away, when was it, a year or two ago now? I guess it's been that long already. Well, she was actually initiated into their order. Uh, I have pictures of it. I've posted it before on Facebook and stuff like that. There's a picture of her being initiated by the Grand Druid. Uh, so we have these traditions, and a lot of them have many of these same teachings at the core. So like Euclidean geometry and stuff like that, like you said, this all ties back to some of the ancient mystery schools, the teachings and stuff that they brought forward, the secret teachings, if you will, the secret doctrine of these various groups who claim to have hidden knowledge the rest of us don't know about and yeah. claim to use these things in certain ways.
Thanks for joining us on Liberty Conspiracy at Free Talk Live. We convene the conspiracy at Rockfin, Rumble, and my Twitter at Guard Goldsmith every Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Spread the word. We'll be back. desire for freedom. We have been enslaved for all our lives. It's the new three-song heavy metal EP from Captain Kickass. Available now on your favorite music app or get it directly from CaptainKickass.com. Free Talk Live continues with Liberty Conspiracy and our guest, Wayne McCroy. This all ties back to some of the ancient mystery schools, the teachings and stuff that they brought forward. The secret teachings, if you will, the secret doctrine of these various groups who claim to have hidden knowledge the rest of us don't know about and claim to use these things in certain ways. So these are core tenets to all of it, and they're all interconnected in some way. So that's why even I said, I mean, the Druids, it's this separate type of uh, geographical area, but yet they still have some of the same core tenets and hallmarks and teachings of other secret society groups that have emerged throughout the different parts of the world. And it ties back to this mystery school connotation being involved with it, because you had a secret priestcraft that practiced all these different mythological archetypes in different ways, had external or exoteric worship of certain gods. But behind that was the secret teachings that they had. And they all venerated the same things and did the same things. So very much of the time, the reasons that they do this kind of stuff are probably far different than what the public did this stuff for. And that's and the important thing to keep in mind. Well, same way, and it's interesting because you mentioned the exoteric and the esoteric. And there were certain periods in British history when some of those things sort of crossed. You got that guy Gardner who uh, was very involved in the occult at the turn of the century, involved with the royal family, the queen. You've got uh, Madame Blavatsky, You've got the theosophy movement. You've got Aleister Crowley. You've got the spy rings that come off of that and then come over to the United States. You get the end of the British Empire. And 
it's absolutely fascinating when you think of things like, you know, we talked about Euclidean geometry and I mentioned maybe a week ago, I was talking about how the film Wizard of Oz, um, L. Frank Baum was a theosophist and he not only had a lot of messages in there about whether they were going to have a gold standard or a silver standard in the book and so on and so forth. But if you watch the movie, you'll see at the end when the wizard gives the scarecrow his diploma, the scarecrow points at his head and he recites the Pythagorean theorem. And Pythagoras was very much into Egyptian alchemical occultism. And, and, and Plato picked up on that with his idea of the uh, people having certain types of elements in their system and the, the blood that was lead or, you know, bronze or gold and the ideal city state being run by the philosopher Kings. He was a massive fan of the uh, Euclidean geometry and of Pythagoras, who himself had been heavily influenced by the Egyptian alchemical movement. Right. Oh yeah, all these things tie together, and you'll you'll notice that the the city in the Wizard of Oz is the Emerald City. Well, what color is the Emerald? It's green, right? Yeah, yeah. Emeralds are green. Well, that is a cue right there. That's an esoteric sign by Frank Baum. The it's not just because of the dollar, the green. No, dollar. no, no. Oh, there's I didn't more. Know that. It's the green language. That's what the Freemasons call it. It's called the language of the birds. It's the phonetic Kabbalah. It's the secret language of the elite of these secret society groups. So he's telling you in no uncertain terms, my movie, my book is loaded with symbology if you have but eyes to see. So that's what that is. It's the hidden communication system that the secret society groups use to communicate with one another. It's called the green language. Go ahead and research that if you've never looked into that guard. It's a fascinating subject. I've looked at this stuff for many years, and that's how I, I am able to pick up on a lot of this symbology and stuff that most people don't see because of that. If you understand that, then you have... Then you have the the codex for translating their language. So yeah, the and by the way, Oz Oz is referring to Osiris. If you were wondering about the Egyptian connection there, that's what Oz is really referencing. So the Wizard of Osiris, and of course, who was the Wizard of Osiris? If you look back, who was the practitioner of magic in Egypt that was heavily revered? Well, that's Isis. So you have the connection, the Isis Osiris Horus myth already being entangled there. And of course, Pythagoras was a very hugely influential figure throughout all of these secret society groups. He was one of the highest initiates. And some say he was concurrent with who was called in some traditions, Hermes Trismegistus. So uh, you have a heavy hermetic uh, thing going right through uh, Greek philosophy right on in. Absolutely. It's all interconnected. And so much so Pythagoras being such an important figure, Somebody a little bit closer to modern times, a Rosicrucian fellow named Dr. Ruben Swineburn Clymer, his official title within some of these occult fraternities, within the quote-unquote Illuminati, and they are a real thing, he was called Pythagoras 38. That was the title he took on, Pythagoras 38. Uh, So many people are unaware of this stuff, but absolutely the Illuminati as a group does exist. They use different names at different times. But I have actual books that say Temple of the Illuminati on the cover. And they were written and they were in connection with the Rosicrucian Brotherhoods, various ones of the secret society groups. So they're acknowledged to exist today still. 
Wayne, uh, Wayne McCroy is our guest, folks. Again, go to Alchemical Tech Revolution if you're watching this after the fact, if you're watching live. Go to some live questions in just a minute if it's okay with you, Wayne. Would that be all right? Yeah, I'm cool with that. Great, man. Um, listen, you know, I know, you know, we, we use the Halloween date to be able to open up this uh, Pandora's box in a way to look at these things. How you keep track of these things and allow for a through line when so many things run parallel and you can hop from one to the other. And yet you make it so interesting and so linear. I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned the green thing and the green language. Um Am I fishing when I think about the legend of King Arthur and was it Sir Gawain and the Green Knight? Was that the, because I know they just did a movie recently where they redid that. And I know that Tolkien did a, uh, a retelling of the Green Knight. Was it Sir Gawain and the Green Knight? I believe it was. That sounds familiar. Sir Gawain, the yeah. Green Knight. Yeah. You'll notice they always have that, that green connection to a lot of these things. Uh, why do you think it's called the green movement here now, too? I mean, this is certainly there's an environmental factor, of course. But the, you see, they use this type of subtle nuance, this this use of archetype. This is something that resonates with the unconscious human mind. You don't pick up on it consciously, but it has a very real effect on your forward behaviors, on your subconscious behaviors. So uh, these things, they utilize these principles all the time. Uh, so words have power and they have inherent meanings behind them that oftentimes people don't recognize on the surface. And this is what is the difference between exoteric and esoteric. So right. you see something like that. And certainly you could pick up the the nuance there. And probably Frank Baum was putting it in there with about the dollar and the gold and silver standard. All of that is interlaced with it. But that's only the exoteric version of what's being said. There's a deeper meaning behind it. And that's how a lot of these people operate. They have layers of meaning for all these different symbols. And depending upon your level of initiation into their secret brotherhoods is dependent upon how much of it you could pick up on or how much of this stuff you've studied is how much you can pick up on. Boy, this is unbelievable. Um, let's head over to Rockfin Chat, see what's heading out, uh, hang, hanging out there. Chris Graves is there. And um, let's see. I want to just see on the comments, uh, Brian Taylor, Pythagoras triangle represents the Freemason Trinity. He says a square represents Osiris uh, B square. There's a B there. I'm not sure if I'm reading this right, Brian. So pardon me. Um, represents Isis. Oh, A square represents Osiris. B square represents Isis and C square represents Horus. I've never heard that. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's like the Holy Trinity, if you go back to the Egyptian mythology there. It represents all of these different archetypes, like across the board. Uh, so depending upon what what's your religious system that you use, this is why the Freemasons use this, because they could transcend different religious systems or mythological systems with it. It represents the same thing across the board in all these different traditions. So that that's representative of the Trinity, essentially, if you go back to the Egyptian mythos. And this is where... A lot of the uh, experts in this stuff claim that the mystery schools found their perfection in the Egyptian forum that they had, the Egyptian mythos, where all of the different archetypes were represented in pretty much almost perfect form there. So they have all of these archetypes attached here. And that's what mythological stories and stuff are all about. It's about attaching these archetypes or ideas to these stories so that we can understand them, because sometimes a lot of the symbolism there 
well, it, it, it really can't be described adequately enough with words. So they, that's why they use symbols and they use stories to get across a point to the human being because it resonates with us. It's something archetypal inherent in our psyches. So that's one of these things. And that's why that triangle, the Pythagorean triangle has been used as a symbol for that very thing for many, many thousands of years now. It's the same type of archetype at play. So they could use it in different ways to represent different things. And of course, there's that nuance and subtle meaning behind it there too. So you could trace it back to that. A lot of the uh, Freemasons and uh, the various mystery school groups, the secret society groups, like to trace things back to the Egyptian mythology because that kind of gives them a similar base to work from. That way they all kind of know what was going on in the Egyptian system. That's why they they put such emphasis on the Egyptian mythos. That's why out of all of the different cultural groups in the world, there's only Egyptology that has its own science. Did you ever wonder why that is? Yeah, well, it's because it's because these mystery schools and these secret occult fraternities, they use this as a reference point for everything. And I could tell you another thing, everything, a lot of, I shouldn't say everything, but a lot of what we've been handed by Egyptologists, well, it's not telling you the truth. <laughs> That's just where I was going to go. You know, my, I, you, you immediately got me thinking of my visits to the British Museum and the movement to get those materials out of Egypt, show certain things, hide other things. So do you think there have been a lot of forces behind what was recovered, what was shown and the stories that were told to people about what was shown? Well, yeah, this all ties back to who's running the place here. Uh, I like to tell people that at the very tippy top of the power structure in this world, there are dark occultists who run things. And I certainly still believe that. And I will maintain that because it's demonstrable. You see all the ways that the occult is leveraged throughout society. And there's this same small power group that's been controlling things from behind the veil for a long, long time now. And of course, they want to keep certain things hidden from the public because they view us all as the profane. That's what they call us. If you're not an initiate in their one of their secret orders, well, you're nothing. You're a little more than livestock to them. And you're profane and you don't deserve to know the secrets. And they don't want you to know the secrets because their viewpoint is your cattle to be manipulated how they see fit. If you're not initiated into one of their secret society groups, you don't even have a soul according to some of their belief systems. So, Do you, I'm curious, Wayne, I have a couple questions, but the first one, okay, so I'll ask, I'll ask this one, just, you know, random here, um, of the two. People looking at Halloween now, uh, is it, how would you, what would you like to tell those people if they've got kids, if they might be going to Halloween parties and things like that, to view regarding their own spirit, what they might be buying into, what they might be contributing to. How do you look at this as far as the metaphysical goes and what people could actually be dabbling in without even realizing it? Well, I would just advise people go back and look at the Bible. It says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers of wickedness in high places. So that's essentially what it is. I mean, we have this spiritual connotation attached to all of it. And whether you believe this stuff or not is irrelevant, really. 
even if you think it's utter nonsense, what you need to understand is there are people in this world who very much believe in these principles and these things I'm talking about. And the things they do to act upon their beliefs in them will affect all of us. So it's important that you understand what is their motive motivation? What's their modus operandi? How and why do they do the things they do? And this is part and parcel of that. So even if you don't buy into the spirit realm of things, which I think if you don't, I think you need to do a little more self-introspection on that part. But uh, that's my opinion. So even if you don't buy into any of that, though, you still need to understand there's people in positions of power in this world that very much do. And they will do things acting on their beliefs that affect us all. So that's the okay. I'm going to hop back in and place your questions in Rockford or Rumble for Wayne McCroy, folks. And Brian's uh, got a, a couple other points here in a question, I think, uh, over in Rockfin. Uh, after he talked about the, the square of A, square of B, square C, with all this Israel stuff going on, has Wayne looked into the Talmud? To me, it seems to be the Jewish interpretation of the mysteries. And then he has another question about Thomas Paine. Okay, we'll talk well, about Thomas Paine next. Addressing the Talmud, you have to realize the Talmud was written largely based upon Kabbalic principles, principles of Kabbalah, which is known as the Jewish mysticism in some circles. But it actually goes way deeper than that because there are different forms of Kabbalah, and most people are completely unaware of that. And, of course, we're talking about Kabbalah here spelled with a K. And the spelling's important, too just for everybody out there uh, to understand. So this is referencing back to the Kabbalah spelled with a K, which in the Hebrew means tradition. And this ties directly into the Talmud. So you do have a lot of these mystic interpretations being actually presented there in an almost exoteric type form in many ways. So this is something that most people completely miss the point on. It always ties back to these occult principles with all of this stuff. So yes, the Talmud, there is a connection there. And with all the stuff going on today in Israel, I don't claim to have all the answers to all of that. All I'm saying is just keep your eyes on the situation and don't believe what the media is telling you 100% with that either. Yeah. Yeah. So, Well, Brian's next question, he says, does Thomas Paine, and these are great, Brian, awesome, does, and, and a great, great person to bring up. Does Thomas Paine have a connection to the mysteries? He seems to use the term profane a lot in his work, The Age of Reason. Do you have any thoughts on that? I haven't done much investigation into Thomas Paine's background, but if he uses the word profane quite heavily, well, I would say there's probably a very good chance he has some association with some occult fraternity and most likely the Freemasons. So let's put yeah. it down. Interesting, because Brian adds specifically Payne calls the Bible profane. If it is the Bible he calls profane, then who is his God? Because he seems to believe in a God. Is it the God of the mysteries? Interesting. So we'll leave well, that very yeah, very well could be. I can't claim to know, but, uh, you know, the God of the mysteries, well, depending upon who you listen to within the mysteries, they'll tell you this could be different forces or different things. But uh, mm. a lot of times the name Lucifer comes up at the topmost levels of these places. The so, light bringer. Yep. Uh, um, by the way, I want to thank Rick 
XRP who tipped $10 over on Rockfin. Rick, thank you. You rock, man. You rock. And if anybody has any further questions, continue. Please do so. And uh, I'm just going to go scroll down to the bottom, Wayne. You know how it goes. Um, now, I've got a, a question for you uh, in your personal development, Wayne. You, you have such a depth of knowledge and breadth of knowledge, right? Was there a time that you recall when you first started to get interested in investigating these things? What drove you to this? You know, I talked about the past, you know, number of days, you know, spooky stories, scary stories that inspired people. But as an adult now, I'm trying to utilize the appreciation for the scary stories to recognize that they're just stories told by people. But sometimes they can connect with us to make us realize that there's something beyond the physical. And if we walk the right path towards Christianity, then we can understand where all of the physical came from. If we wander just for the sake of titillation or because we like the spookiness, we like the themes or whatever, or we're unaware of what we're searching for um, or what we're encountering as we search, uh, we can run into some problems. What was it that inspired you? Was it a series of stories were you into horror stuff as a kid was it an event in your life looking at the course of history that made you realize there's a lot connected that goes way back and these forces really exist well i've always since i i've been a young child i've always been fascinated with the paranormal or the supernatural especially the subject of ufos and that's largely where i started my research in adult life with this stuff when I started really deep diving into that. I have had some very strange paranormal encounters and experiences through the years, which kind of piqued my curiosity, but it wasn't until around 2006 or so that I really started delving very deeply into many of these subjects. And it started with the UFO phenomenon for me. It's always been something that's fascinated me. I have seen some UFOs myself in the past, and I had an encounter with one in 2006 that really sent me searching. And then kind of doubling down on that, uh, saw some things arise uh, several years later with uh, my child developing autism and all the things surrounding that that got me delving deep into the roots of the medical system and stuff like that as well. And wouldn't you know, every time you go exploring down the paths of any of these types of conspiracy type topics, you always inherently land in one of two places. And it's it's both. One it will be in the extreme ancient antique past where you always find the occult. And the other end of the spectrum is always in the future, the very near future, right within our reach, where you find the philosophy of transhumanism and they interconnect. And that is largely what inspired me to start going down this path here and really doing the deep research, because I found this connection. Our modern sciences and technologies and the end game they have in mind with them, transhumanism, their roots lie back in ancient alchemy and the ancient mystery schools in occultism. And they're interconnected in this way. And they've brought forward some of the hermetic principles and the old antiquated i guess you would call the old sciences i don't see them as antiquated they're probably more accurate than our modern science but the old alchemical or natural sciences you go back and you look at that and now we're beginning to see where a lot of this jives with our knowledge base today and a perfect example 
as to where you can find this tie would be with Walter Russell's work. Go and look at Walter Russell. He explains a lot of these things about modern science that don't align with what our modern theories are right now. But if you go back and you look and you see how it melds together with some of the ancient belief systems, you'll see there's a definite framework there that seems like to, to be more of an accurate description of things than what our modern systems would explain them as. So you re repeat Paul. his name for the audience one more time. Walter Russell. Go look up Walter Russell. Wayne, I got to say, you know, it's very interesting. We often are flooded with contemporary stories, breaking stories and things like that. And they introduce the ideas of forces. I, I was talking about the thesis of, you know, this colonization thing and how the state actually colonizes our lives. And that is in the day to day person to person thing. But what we're also seeing here, this might be one of the most important conversations I've had in months. I just want to tell you. And I, I really appreciate you coming on, Wayne, because it allows us to see that while we're dealing with these day-to-day -day forces, we can see that there is a dark and very, very long history, whether it's people who are effectuated by these beliefs or it's people who are working within a system that has been molded and shaped by people with these beliefs it is constantly attacking our free will and our soul. Am I wrong? No, you're spot on. That's exactly what it's about. It's about collectivism, formerly known as communism on the political spectrum. But now they'll refer to it as communitarianism or collectivism or some such thing or socialism. Pickinism. <laughs> That's what this is all about. It's about this collective mindset, this Borg mind mentality. We've got one more segment chatting with our expert on the occult, Wayne McCroy, here on the Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Thanks for being part of the conspiracy for freedom. Because freedom is out of fashion nowadays. The Shire Free Church offers a sanctuary to those seeking an escape from state churches. The Shire Free Church is an interfaith, diverse group of people that may not share identical theological beliefs. As a member in or minister of the Shire Free Church, you are a sovereign individual and may be the faith of your choice. We don't claim to have all of the answers. We are open to all peaceful people. We want to learn from each other. What unifies the Shire Free Church and its diverse members is peace, love, and liberty. There are many paths to God, one for every individual. The Shire Free Church does not define a specific path beyond these parameters that must be your foundation. Peace as your way. Love as your guide. And liberty as your light. Learn more at church.shiresociety.com. That's church. .shiresociety.com Free Talk Live
May I ask you, Wayne, uh, I want to go back on the screen if I can show this uh, to people again, uh, because, you know, people are sitting down and watching on their screens. Maybe they'll take a screenshot, head over to the link now while we're chatting or something like that. I know sometimes it can be distracting when you open up other links while there's a conversation going on. But I just want to mention over at, at Amazon, you got the Demica Pan breaking the natural order, alchemical tech revolution, cybernetic messiah, autism epidemic and Autism AI and the Singularity. Would you like to pick one of those to sort of round off this conversation to de- or describe a couple of these to your audience here as, as we chat? Well, basically, The Alchemical Tech Revolution, that was my first book, which I published back in 2017. Uh, that one uh, covers a broad spectrum of what you might call the conspiratorial type topic and gives kind of this whole notion, puts two and two together and says, hey, our modern technologies and the things that they're pursuing with our modern technologies that lead to this end of transhumanism, they have their derivation and their source back in occultism, in the occult and the magical principles. And that's what they're bringing forward. And this is the fruition of their great work. The notion or advent of transhumanism, the singularity will be the completion of their great work. That's the fulfillment thereof. So that's essentially, in a nutshell, what I talk about. And I connect a lot of dots and I talk about various topics that interrelate throughout this and how it ties back to some of the old occult ideologies, things like the Gollum or ideas like the homunculus and how our modern science is going there pretty much. Um, When I think about the golem, I actually have a story that I'm working on sort of in a C.S. Lewis sort of vein, uh, this alternate world where someone who's been corrupted is trying to keep himself going by the sort of golem thing. Um, It's, it's the, the creature made from the from the earth can you describe that to people and do you know whether or not tolkien used that as uh, inspiration for Gollum, or is that just i don't know i don't think he used it as inspiration for Gollum, the character there but the Gollum essentially this is like a lifeless automat automaton yeah that has some sort of an indwelt spirit in it that's not human and basically it's it's a a an emotionless type machine that will do the bidding of its master. And that's essentially what it is. Uh, So when you bring that forward to today and the notion of transhumanism, well, one of my theories that I speculate on, and this is all, I, I reserve the right to be totally wrong about all of this, but essentially when I look at things through the lens of my observation and my experience, With this spiritual lens I have, the notion I see is this advent of transhumanism or the the notion of being able to merge your mind with a a machine and maybe upload your consciousness to a machine and live forever. I see that as being a false notion. And what indeed is being done is it's creating a gateway to bring in some non-human spirit into physical manifestation here in reality. Uh, So I see that as being the fulfillment of this golem idea, this transhumanist notion, this uh, merging of your consciousness with the machine, because that's what the transhumanist philosophy is all about. That's what the proponents of it are talking about, eventually being able to transfer your consciousness into a machine and being able to live forever in some virtual world or be able to transfer your consciousness to a new body of some sort and exist any way you see fit 
And it's a lie. It's a promise that could never truly be achieved because this bypasses the spiritual concern of things. It looks strictly on the material world paradigm way of thinking. And that's right where they want us to be. That's what these occultists, these dark occultists that run things, this is where they want our mindset to be focused strictly on the physical material world. Yes. So that's why our science always seems to steer us in that direction. So they attempt to explain away consciousness. All right. Consciousness itself as nothing more than the electrochemical byproduct of your brain and brainstem. And if that's the case, if that's true, then it could be whittled down to little more than an algorithm. So if this could be whittled down to an algorithm, it could be duplicated in a machine. So therefore, they could duplicate your consciousness in a machine and you can live forever. That's the notion they want to go with. But here's the problem. This bypasses the idea of the ontological I am or the ontological self. Who am I? Am I a spirit? Am I a soul? This bypasses that notion of things. So even though they may be able to create a very accurate facsimile of you in a machine, is that really going to be you existing there? Your consciousness existing there, your soul, your spirit existing there? And this notion brings up a lot of questions then. Well, if it's not and it's a cheap knockoff, then what is this exactly? What is this notion of transhumanism? Well, and this is where it gets a little bit more speculative about this. So if that's the case, if they can't truly, if you can't truly live forever transferring your consciousness into a machine, then what happens with that? Well, they make this this facsimile of you that's very convincing for other people. So then people begin to believe, oh, this can be done. This is real. I know my relative. They, they went through this process and now they live forever in the machine. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. So what is this actually? Well, it's a great culling process. It's a eugenics program. That's essentially what it is. And they've been talking about this eugenics depopulation plan for a long time. So that's one notion of thinking you could go with. Now, another one that's a little more frightening is if you do actually are you are capable of somehow manifesting or transferring your spirit into a machine. Isn't that kind of like creating your own personal hell? Yeah, that's the other context of it you have to look at. So I explore these avenues of thought in my work and in my writing. And I think this is the ultimate fulfillment of their quote unquote great work. Now this would be the twisted dark occultists at the top of the power structure that are seeking these things and abusing some of these old natural sciences and alchemical sciences to get there because they seek to be the gods of this place in no uncertain terms. They want absolute control of everything and they want to be able to live forever. And they see that in their grasp now with modern technologies. So that's why they think they can they think they can yes some of them very much are deluded and believe they can do this and then i i think there's another aspect of some of these dark controllers who know better but still they want to take down as many souls as they can in the process and you know it's interesting wayne because if you look at philosophies that are arising from the esoteric and from the alchemical, there is this idea of the perfectibility of man through just man's efforts, that you don't have to connect to the power who created you. And this is, of course, the the technological endpoint of that. It is the, well, of course, in a way, we're all going to be golems. Uh, we will have our consciousness transferred into things made of silica, of metal, of of different elements, 
and we will be perfected and we can perfect ourselves through that way. There will be no disease or anything like that and we'll live forever. And of course, that runs completely contrary to the very concept of Christianity, even Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, which is that man was created by God, man is flawed, we have original sin, and the way that we get salvation is not through worldly changes necessarily, but through recognizing our creation and the commandments of God. Oh, absolutely. But there are those within some of these occult fraternities that have taken some of the teachings and twisted them way out of context and yeah. have considered them as such. Now you will have this. This leads down to a basic separation in philosophy. Okay. Yeah. There's two different groups of people in this world when you ask the occultists or the uh, those people in the secret society groups about this. There's first, there's who they call themselves the philosophers of fire. They are the sons of Cain, and they are the ones, they're the builders, they're the ones that get things done. Okay, uh, you thought Granger had a great logo there or a great uh, moniker, the ones that get things done. That's the builders. That's these people who belong to these secret fraternities, okay? They see themselves as the sons of Cain. They're the philosophers of fire. They build their own way. They've taken a portion of scripture, twisted it, and contorted it all out of context. Mm -hmm. And this is where man will have dominion over the earth. So they see man having dominion, meaning man can take control. He can reshape the earth, build it into whatever he wants, and he can do it better. He can become greater than God. And this ties back to the original lie in the Garden of Eden. You can be as gods. Well, that's what they believe. So they think they can build their own salvation. And they see the other side of this, those people as being weak-willed and not being deserving of having this type of an elevation, a spiritual elevation of sorts. So the other side of this is whom they call those of the waters of faith. And those would be the godly sons of Seth. So those are the ones that are content with taking what God has given us here and utilizing that and being content with that, living off of nature, working with the natural principles, working within the natural order of things. Whereas the philosophers of fire, they work against or contrary to the natural order of things, and they want to build something wholly artificial or synthetic that they can be the gods of and have total control of. They truly believe they can build a better world than God. They can build a better man than God. And this is what they pursue. And they see themselves, they see this as their divine right to do so. And this this ties back again to some old other occult principles and occult teachings of the mythological type uh, that I don't know if you want to touch on that tonight. Uh, I, honestly, I could talk for 12 hours about this. It's just so fascinating. And you know, the thing that gets me, Wayne, is why it, it, they go through all of these things and make it so hard when it's so simple. You know, it's like, the, e- the easiest way is to recognize what's manifestly around you. Just take a look and and you start to get it. You don't have to like, well, we're going to worship this animal God or do this or this ritual thing over here. It's like, no, you don't have to do that. Just think it through, you know? Well, that's, that's, that's the other side of it. And this is what I always try to teach all the time when I'm talking about this stuff. Because what I do is I'll go and I'll find their own books, their own writings, and I'll tell you what it is that they believe in their own words. And then I will offer the biblical counterbalance to this. And Jesus Christ told us something specific. He told us that he would be a stumbling block for these people. And most certainly he is because the simplicity of his divine salvation plan 
it makes all of their work moot. Yeah. <laughs> so they strive, they, they're, they're, they're grasping for the wind, as Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a grasping for wind. It's, it's endless striving for this. It's man trying to earn his own salvation, trying to earn his own spiritual success. When God made a simple path for us, and it's a free gift, and all you have to do is accept the free gift, and that's that, man. It's simple. It's so simple that it causes a stumbling block for people. So you don't have to go through the whole process of joining a secret society, being initiated into their rights, swearing their blood oaths, learning all of their secrets that they teach you within this, uh, learning all of the the secret handshakes and all of the, the code words and everything else and going through all this rigmarole and this magical training and learning all this stuff in order to build your own salvation. And at the end of it all, you still have nothing. You know nothing. It's a carrot they dangle before you all the time. More knowledge, more knowledge, more knowledge. You want to know the next secret? They they dangle that carrot in front of you, make you believe they know something that you don't, and they keep you walking down the path they want you down. It's a control system, even within the secret society groups. This is how they operate, and that's how they keep you marching forward, thinking you're going to learn some grand secret nobody else knows. You'll achieve some type of a magical, supernatural ability nobody else has, and it's all a lie. The real yeah. secret behind it all is controlling people. And they're masters at it. They, they make you swear allegiance and blood oaths to uphold the secrets of their fraternity and not to tell them to any outsider. So this is one of the ways they do things. Secrecy is one of the greatest mind control secrets ever. Yeah. Ever and of course, if you break their rules, you won't be part of that group that gets the gravy. That's right. And a lot of people just join like a lot of these groups like the Masons because, well, it gives them better business dealings in the community. They could go down to the car walking car or the car dealership and get a, a square deal, you know, wink, yeah. wink, nudge. Yeah. yeah you know, this you're traveling so man, from east to west <laughs> or west yeah. to east. Yeah, you make me think of the uh, the great Monty Python skit, the architect sketch, where they show the replay of the Masonic handshake, but they make it a goofy handshake and stuff. And they show, I love that. It's just hilarious. It's great stuff. Wayne, I know we're going to have to close things off, but I would love to have you back whenever you're free. And I know you're very busy covering stuff, doing all your productions. Again, let's mention to people the new website. It's available, folks, at Alchemical Tech Revolution. We'll show it right there. And I love, where'd you get that artwork? Uh, that's all made by me. So oh, that's amazing. That is just incredible. I might need to approach you for the cover for one of my books, especially this one about uh, bats. We'll, we'll see. Uh, oops. I, sorry. I put myself on there. Sorry about that. Um, and Wayne, when can people hear you next live? Uh, next live, uh, probably Tuesday night on Rockfin. I'll be on live. What time do you know? Usually 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That seems to be the best time for me to do these things. All right, man. I hope people will go to your website, check you out, get hooked in. They can become paid subscribers. They can donate per episode or whatever they want to do over on Rockfin as well and pick up the books. I think that would be really, really cool. And I'd love to have you back whenever you might be free, even next week. If you want to come back, it'd be fantastic. Yeah, man. Hit me up. We'll arrange something. Sounds good. All right. Appreciate All right. It. Cool, man. Thanks. I'll, uh, I'll get ready to wrap up the show and get some dinner going and stuff like that. And I will make no sacrifices uh, for my food, but I will pray before I eat. Thanks, man. All right, dude. Be well, my friend.
Thank you, brother. We'll talk to you soon. Wayne McCroy, good guy. Man, what an interesting – that was cool. That was really, really – an absolutely fascinating and important. Um, let me see. We've got uh, – and I'll – we might want to mention these again next time Wayne is with us. Um, uh, Brian says, the perfectibility of man – he's in Rockfin. The perfectibility of man – that the secret societies talk about is Gnosticism. Yep. Which is the inner doctrine of these groups. Yep. And uh, Taylor is there. Uh, he says in the Bible, it states the devil liar and father of lies. Brian says um, the hate of the God of the Bible. That's why they do all the this convoluted BS. Yeah, I think you're right. And the more wrapped up they can get people into doing these things, the more they occupy people's time to pay their attention to these things when they could be paying attention to more important things like their soul and family and God. Uh, then we got guard should look into Captain William Morgan, says Brian. He reviled some Freemason initiation rites and he was killed for it. It happened in the mid to late 1800s, I believe. Yeah, Wayne's great. And Brian says, I like Wayne. This was great. Yeah, it was great. Um, phenomenal. Our last segment uh, will likely have to do with a lot of some some of the material, actually, we're going to be discussing with our great guest coming right up. He is, of course, Eric Peters. And, you know, rather than going with the mind meld straight up, it's time for a little theme, everybody. It's our climate cult theme. Yeah, it was warm in New England today, I gotta say. Oh man, Buster, he is all right. If you didn't see David Johansson in Scrooged, check him out. He was just fantastic as a cab driver. Really, really fun movie. It's a takeoff, of course of uh, the Dickens story, uh, Christmas Carol. And I want to show you a couple of the items I, I do want to discuss and mix into our conversation, as well as the great articles that Eric Peters has at ericpetersautos.com. Excess deaths are being monitored as an indicator, not of the jabs. No, 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 uh, no. All, all deaths, uh, all cause deaths rising. No, they're claiming that they're rising because of, you got it, so-called anthropogenic climate change, which, of course, we're not seeing dramatic rises in the temp. And then there's this. If you didn't know about it, in Massachusetts, the place where the mayor wants all construction to be done uh, with, uh, you know, totally so-called carbon zero means, you know, so the workers in the middle of the winter have a really good time trying to stay warm and concrete is going to become very difficult to use. Uh, they also have an office of let me just show you real quick they have an office of climate innovation and resilience in the state of massachusetts because it's awesome and it's really great and they've been issuing all sorts of what they call and you'll see it down here whole of government innovation and resilience answers 
to imposing more regulations, as if the lockdowns in Massachusetts weren't bad enough. Yeah, indeed, they just offered their press release. Climate chief report outlines whole of government approach to address climate crisis. It's a crisis. They said so on the 25th. So you better keep it in mind. But at the same time, we're seeing that General Motors is ditching its goal of building 400,000 EVs in North America through mid-2024. And Honda and GM are abandoning $5 billion in plans to co-develop affordable EVs. That from the Daily Caller. Interesting. Very interesting. Reuters had this report originally. $5 billion. They're putting the brakes on $5 billion. Are they going to permanently do that? After extensive studies and analysis, we have come to a mutual decision to discontinue the program. Each company remains committed to affordability in the EV market. The companies announced in a joint statement, according to Reuters, and there's the Reuters piece, Honda GM scrapped plan to co-develop cheaper EVs. Hmm, could there be even more? This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases, but Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction. And its features ensure Dash is undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible and its network is protected from 51% of attacks by their chain locks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering a Dash transaction complete, so it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya protocol and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Thanks to the Dash DAO. Big thanks to them for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash Dash.org. Free Talk Live. Here it is, everybody. The Mind Meld with guest Eric Peters. Oh, yes, indeed. Go to ericpetersautos.com, one and all. And I want to show you a couple of the items I, I do want to discuss and mix into our conversation, as well as the great articles that Eric Peters has at ericpetersautos.com. Excess deaths are being monitored as an indicator, not of the jabs. No, 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 uh, no. All, all deaths, uh, all cause deaths rising. No, they're claiming that they're rising because of, you got it, so-called anthropogenic climate change, which, of course, we're not seeing dramatic rises in the temp. And then there's this. If you didn't know about it, in Massachusetts, the place where the mayor wants all construction to be done uh, with, uh, you know, totally so-called carbon zero means, you know, so the workers in the middle of the winter have a really good time trying to stay warm and concrete is 
going to become very difficult to use. Uh, they also have an office of, let me just show you real quick. They have an office of climate innovation and resilience in the state of Massachusetts because it's awesome and it's really great. And they've been issuing all sorts of what they call, and you'll see it down here, whole of government innovation and resilience answers to imposing more regulations, as if the lockdowns in Massachusetts weren't bad enough. Yeah, indeed, they just offered their press release, Climate Chief Report Outlines Whole-of-Government Approach to Address Climate Crisis. It's a crisis. They said so on the 25th, so you better keep it in mind. But at the same time, we're seeing that General Motors is ditching its goal of building 400,000 EVs in North America through mid-2024, and Honda and GM are abandoning $5 billion in plans to co-develop affordable EVs, that from the Daily Caller. Interesting, very interesting. Reuters had this report originally. $5 billion. They're putting the brakes on $5 billion. Are they going to permanently do that? After extensive studies and analysis, we have come to a mutual decision to discontinue the program. Each company remains committed to affordability in the EV market. The companies announced in a joint statement, according to Reuters, and there's the Reuters piece, Honda GM scrap plan to co-develop cheaper EVs. Hmm. Could there be even more that the climate cult is telling us they're doing in retreat? Well, yes, there could. Toyota chairman, who was hesitant to embrace EVs, says people are finally seeing reality about their constraints. We got to speak with Eric about the changeover in Toyota. We'll see if it still looks dark for Toyota. Toyota Motor chairman and former CEO Akio Toyota, quote, may be enjoying an I told you so moment, according to a report from the Wall Street Journal. People are finally seeing reality, said Toyota, who is also head of the Japan Automobile Manufacturers Association and was speaking with reporters Wednesday as, mu- at, as such at the Japan Mobility Show. There are many ways to climb the mountain that is achieving carbon neutrality, said Toyota, who spent almost 14 years of, as the CEO of Toyota. And so Toyota, as you see there, don't forget Toyota chairman, He says people are finally seeing reality about those things, those EV things. And then we're going to go into, after we chat with Eric, the recap on the controversial Midwest CO2 pipeline project canceled in a blow to the climate uh, Biden climate plans. And I'll go through my uh, MRC TV pieces to give you greater context. Right now, let's see my incredible bald pate and let's be joined by... Our main man, the guy you know from Eric Peters Autos. He is a happening dude, and he doesn't have a bald pate. He's Eric Peters. He's with us right now. I hope the tech is working for you. How you doing, Eric? I'm that is good, guard. Look what I got for you. I was listening to your segment earlier. Do you recognize this? Yeah. What, it, what, it, is that, what is it? It looks like, looks like a fez, first it's of all. It's the Mussolini fez. And, and if you'll note, if you look closely, can you see the bird of prey holding the fascies, the bundle? Yeah, the yeah bring that real close. Fascism. That's yeah, where bring, the word comes from. Bring that real close to the camera so everybody can see the fascies. 
Yes, there they are. You can see them at the Lincoln Memorial. Absolutely. Yep. You can see them in so many of the official things with the United States Bird of Prey holding the fasces. Give them the heads up about the fasces, the grouping of those things. If they yeah, saw well, the and dates and- back, It dates back to ancient Rome. It, it was a symbol of the authority of the Roman state. And uh, there were men called lictors who carried the fasces, the bundled fasces, ahead of the emperor. And it was essentially an embodiment of the authority of the Roman state uh, in the form of these bundles. And it represents today the, the enmeshing of corporate power with government power. And that gets us into the topic du jour about this EV fiasco. And the really good news, I'm in a good mood today, is because uh, the wheels seem to be coming off the EV bandwagon, all four of them at once, it looks like. It's really amazing, amazing stuff. And by the way, Eric, uh, I want to mention to you, you sound great. I was worried that my tech on my side uh, wasn't wasn't going to be up to snuff. And it has been just the most fantastic day with positive news on this front at the same time that I'm handling this terrible stuff out of Maine. So I uh, greatly appreciate that things are going smoothly here, that we get to commiserate. And the idea that you've got that fez, first of all, I got to mention to you, I don't know if you ever watch Overlord DVD, but um, it's a review channel uh, with a guy who only wears a mask and goes by the name Doomcock. And he's no, sort of a I'm have to look into this. Oh, he's great. He's great. Yeah. I saw him probably the first week he was on. He's got a, almost, I'm sure he must have like a million uh, subscribers or, or more now on, on uh, YouTube. And it, he started by talking about wokeness with Star Trek and Dr. Who, you know, all the stuff that, you know, perhaps you love. I love um, uh, the way that game of Thrones fell apart. And he is, wonderful in his writing and he has a sidekick who wears a fez and it's a cthulhu plushie (laughs) and he he, i can't remember what he calls him but he does the voice of the cthulhu plushie and so he does an insert he never takes off his 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 mask and he says people of earth it is i doomcock your future ruler coming to you like from from his special hideout where he's making his plans to rule earth and he's got this plushie a plushy Cthulhu with a fez. It's great. Doesn't have doesn't have the fashies though. It doesn't That's have the awesome. fashies. I'm gonna have to check it out. Yeah, and you know, you remind me in the new, uh, the the first of the new Planet of the Apes movies where they use the great CG and stuff like that. The guy who the the character Caesar actually talks about how he's like to get. He takes the sticks and he and he breaks a stick separately and he goes separate, weak, together, and he goes like this. Yeah strong and it's like whoa you're talking fascism right there Mussolini would be proud yeah I love it tyrannical yeah yeah so it's it's great to see Eric I'm so glad I can see you it's really awesome so yeah what do you think about this you know I went through some of the things about Honda GM Toyota and you're probably noticing Mm -hmm. a lot more I'm noticing a lot of people are reporting more on the fires um evs let's talk about evs and then we'll head over to your website and talk about some more of those great articles you've been writing over at ericpetersautos.com well sure you know i think it's it's kind of analogous to what happened with the masks and with the vaccines you know people were told one thing lectured about one thing and were very heavily pressured to believe something about the masks and the vaccines but after a period of time the truth began to leak out about the masks and the vaccines uh, resulting in what they would style hesitancy about the, about the vaccines and refusal to wear the masks. 
Well, the same kind of thing is playing out now uh, with EVs. You know, they tried very hard to sell people on these things and they touted all of the benefits. Look how quickly they accelerate. They're quiet. You can charge at home. You'll never have to go to a dirty gas station again. They would say things like that. <laughs> well, you know, it's only taken about a year because that's about all that it's been since other manufacturers have really kind of begun to offer uh, their own EVs. Prior to about a year ago, it was almost exclusively Tesla's, you know, with a handful of Nissan Leafs. Uh, and a handful of Chevy Bulls. But for the most part, it was Tesla's. Electric cars were synonymous with Tesla's. Um, but now, you know, because of these federal mandates that have effectively forced all the other manufacturers to bring EVs of their own to market, you got all these other EVs coming to the market, like the F-150 Lightning, for example. Well, as they get into general hands, you know, not just the hands of influencers and uh, people who already have a, a bias toward uh, telling you all of the cool things about EVs, but not any of the not so cool things about EVs, people are finding out, you know, hey, it's not just that these things don't go very far, so they take forever to get going again. You're going to have to deal with this 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 network of so-called fast chargers, which is erratic and, and, and unreliable. Uh, you're probably going to have to spend thousands of dollars upgrading your house if you want to be able to charge one of these things in less than a couple of days at home. Right. Uh, you know, and so people start to look at that and think, gee, hmm, do I want to spend, you know, fifteen or twenty thousand dollars more to get a vehicle that goes half as far, that takes five times as long to get going again, and that has a has all these other potential liabilities too, including the fire problem? And the answer is no. A lot of people are saying, no, thank you. Uh, you know, Ford, uh the, the, the lightning, sales of the lightning are down by almost fifty percent. It's a catastrophe. Wow. 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 Those are a lot of lightnings. And and all those things are just they they overproduce those things, so they've got tons of leftovers just sitting out there. And of course, as we mentioned, they've got to upkeep their charges on those things. So they're wasting money while they're sitting there. Absolutely. And now we're two months away basically from the end of the year. So, you know, these twenty twenty three models that they've produced, they're they're brand new vehicles, but come January one, they're last year's vehicles. So, you know, even if they weren't electric vehicles, they're already depreciated and people are going to, you know, if they're going to buy them, the only way they're going to persuade people to buy them is to dump them at a fire sale price, you know, that I'm done, you know, you to use the, yeah. the double entendre. Yeah, but, right. I mean, they're just, they're hemorrhaging money. They're losing money. Now, the really big news that we should talk about uh, is that word has leaked out that Dodge which had committed to building nothing but battery-powered devices going forward, and specifically a battery-powered version of the very popular Charger, you know, yeah. one of the great-selling cars. And, yeah. you know, we were all crying in our soup about the end of the Hemi V8 and the end of the Charger as a muscle car. Well, they've gone back on that. Yeah, they're going to continue to offer a battery-powered version of it, but they're also going to be installing their new Hurricane Inline 6. It's not a Hemi V8, but it's still a hell of an engine, and it's not an electric motor. So it's not going to be a device. They walked it back. And I think the reason they walked it back, they were being proactive for once. I think they looked at what's happening to Ford. They looked at what's happening to GM. And then they looked and thought about it and thought, you know, people who buy chargers, hmm, trying to sell them a battery-powered device, that's kind of like trying to sell uh, a blue-collar guy a can of Bud Light with Dylan Mulvaney on it. It's not a good idea. It's not going to go over very well. And I think they realized they finally got it, that this is an existential threat to their business, you know, that they're not going to be in business if they keep pushing this this battery-powered device thing. There's no so right. 
Yeah. There's no point to it. Why bother with it? You know, if the charger is a battery powered device, it's the same as every other battery powered device. It just looks a little different, but it's fundamentally the same thing. You know, I mean, yeah. the reason people love those cars, the reason I love them, uh, chargers and challengers and all of that is because, man, that's a cool, it's got that really cool engine, that Hemi V8. And this, you know, again, this inline six, it's not the Hemi V8, but it's still a really, really impressive engine. They're, they're getting more power and more torque out of this six. And sixes have a lot of advantages. Those, that inline six configuration is very smooth, naturally yeah. balanced, high revving. So this could be a phenomenal thing. But the really important thing is that it's a walking back, a very public walking back of this commitment to electrification. I love this. I, hey, Eric, wh- how much um, how much influence do you think the uh, the auto UAW had on this? I. I uh, you know, I know that Biden promised, you know, his $12 billion to invest, and that's a drop in the bucket for what's going to be happening to these industries if they don't wake up. And it looks like they're starting to get some s- smelling salts here. Um, but um, do you think that, that uh, members of the UAW are starting to wake up to this and say, whoa, we're going to lose about half of our, our workforce here if they go over to EVs? I hope so. I have yeah. not seen any sign of that. In fact, I wrote an article earlier today about the deal that Ford and the UAW just struck, uh, according to the terms of which Ford is going to give them a 25% pay increase over the next four years, plus uh, cost of living adjustment, plus some other things. And, you know, who's going to pay for that? Well, it's not going to yeah. be Ford. It's going to be Ford transferring the cost onto its vehicles, which it hopes that its customers are going to be willing to pay. But, you know, we're at a point now where people are looking at spending $100 to get two plastic bags of groceries. And the idea that they're going to be able to handle, you know, another 1000 or $2,000 to pay for a car because they're more expensive to build because the UAW has leveraged and extorted uh, Ford to pay them more money. I think it's a disastrous idea. You know, what good is this 25% raise going to do them if there's no jobs? I in, know. Yeah. In two or three years. It's amazing. And I brought up the image uh, of your article uh, right out there, October 26th from Eric. Your next new Ford just got more expensive. And, you know, this goes all the way back to the uh, pro unionist uh, legislation that was on the books in the United States basically from the 1920s on through to the 2000s and really decimated the American auto working industry because they mm-hmm. became so weighted with all the demands of the unions. I mean, I remember hearing GM say, what are we going to do about this? All these retirement plans that we agreed to for the unions, they're, 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 they're overburdening us. Like mm-hmm. we can't even afford to hire new people because we got these people retiring now. Right. It's a, it's such a mess. It's so stupid. So tell us more about Ford. And then with Ford as the topic, I was really interested to hear you mention the Mustang when you were on with David Knight. And so if you could sort of fold that into the Ford, if Ford would just wake up, if they had just woken up a year and a half ago, maybe they wouldn't be in these problems. We don't know what it would be like with the unions, but at mm-hmm. least they wouldn't have shot themselves in both feet with the electric car investments. Right. I think, okay, just to make a macro point, I don't think there's there's anybody out there who would take issue with a person seeking the highest wage that they can get. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, the problem that I have, uh, though, is with extorting an employer. You know, if you say that your work is worth X, whatever you think it's worth, and the employer says, well, no, you know, that's too much for us. It's not worth it to us to pay you that amount. So we're not going to be able to hire you. Okay, fine. 
that's voluntarism. That's that's free exchange. But instead of accepting that the employer isn't willing to pay them what they think they're worth, uh, they then use this tactic of trying to shut down the business to force the business uh, to pay them what they think they're worth. And that's, you know, that's an outrageous thing. I, I, have a, I have a big problem with that. And I also think that it's counterproductive in the long run, just as you mentioned. GM and all these the legacy manufacturers, as they're called, the, the big three, have been crippled by the, the costs that have been imposed. And it's not just financial costs. Uh, it, it comes in the form of just this sort of uh, uh, lack of is stifling of, of people's initiative to take on responsibility and to do things when they need doing. I, you know, I had, a, I, had a, I had a revelation when I was young and first starting in journalism, because at that time it was still physical. We had what was called a makeup room. And you had guys, you know, who would put together the page, you know, on a, on a, on a template. Right. And the type would come out. You're probably familiar with that. Yeah, and I remember. A, a point came when I had to make a change to an article that I'd written. So I went downstairs and went into the makeup room. And it was a simple little thing. It was just a little typo that I had caught. And so I went ahead and, like, put the correction on the page. And it was there was nothing wrong with my correction. It was done properly. Everything was fine. It was as if, you know, I had violated the sanctum sanctorum of some holy shrine. The union guy came out and went berserk because I had, you know, I had invaded his fief. I had, I had done something that as, you know, as, as a, as, as somebody who was supposed to be upstairs uh, doing the writing and the copy editing and all of that, that was not my area. Right. You know, I'm not allowed to do that. Instead of saying, yeah, that was, that's cool. Fine. You know, I thought looking to take this guy's job. I just wanted to get it done so that the, the freaking paper could go out without a correction and without having to go through a lot of rigmarole. And that, yeah. that really made an impression on me and told me a lot about the way, about the union mentality. Well, especially when, you know, when they are attempting to extort and they're get their rent seeking through political means that make it more difficult to hire people who aren't union in a place that has an established union. So for decades, we got, of course, politicians playing favorites with the unions, getting contributions for their political races by saying, oh, yeah, well, I, I oppose so-called right to work legislation on a state level, on a federal level, whatever it might be. And you still hear people like Elizabeth Warren. She hates right to work concepts. So does Chuck Schumer. Right. And the, the right. They hate the freedom. I mean, my yeah. God, think about how outrageous it is that if you work in one of these union shops, a condition of your employment is you have to pay money. You have to give money to this union that you may disagree with to right. propagate views that are in opposition to yours. You don't represent me. I'm not interested in that. But yeah. yet they're compelled to go along with it, you know, as yeah. a condition of employment. It's amazing. And, and, you know, you get the union people arguing, which at, at a superficial level, it sounds reasonable. But then you dig into it, they're like, oh, it only made, you know, I only needed to like dig one more level down. And that's a stupid argument where they would say, well, you know, we're negotiating. And those people who don't sign on and pay the dues to the unions, they could be free riding on the great negotiations we've done with the employer. Well, it's like, well, how about this? The negotiations only apply to the people who negotiated for that. Right. And other people, exactly. I mean, I mean, it's so dumb, you know? So that's the sort of stuff they'll be like, oh, it quashes negotiation process. No, it tilts the balance towards this organized group of extortionists who have decimated the auto industry in the United States decade upon decade upon decade. And it, it, it blows my mind. The, the other thing about this, Eric, of course, to make the economic argument is I often would tell the students, I would say, imagine you've got a buying buddy and everywhere you go, the buying buddy is right next to you. And every time you go to make a purchase, 
rather than immediately getting the purchase for what the seller wants to sell, the buying buddy forces the seller to sell it to you for a little less. And they'd be like, I was like, so imagine that happens. It's not just negotiation. He's forcing that. Now we can understand morally that's not too good. But if people still don't get it, then you say to yourself, okay, that works to your advantage almost all the time. You're also an employer. Now think about this. What if the buying buddy tells you to pay the other guy more? Because you also are the evil employer. You can't exploit that person when you go to purchase that ear of corn. You should pay him more. And they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, I was like, yeah, we are all employers. We employ each other. It's an exchange. It's called trade. And even though someone hires someone, the person who's being hired is getting all sorts of things, as you and I've discussed, that he wouldn't be able to have because he doesn't have the leverageable capital. He hasn't saved to build the building, to bring in the power, to heat the place, to bring in the tools, to have other people he can work with, to coordinate it, to have the distribution. All those things are the risks that are taken on by the business owner. And we we hear this Marxist claptrap all the time about exploitation we exploit each other in positive ways so right. we ex- it's just it, it amazes me it, it's 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 infantilizing isn't it yeah you know, i've been working since i was 16 years old and yeah. i've always negotiated my own terms and conditions with the people that i've worked for you know they've offered me a certain amount of money to do whatever it was whether when i was a kid cutting grass we came to an agreement and it's empowering to to handle that decision yourself to be the, the, the source of authority. I'll agree to work for you for a sum that I find agreeable. And if not, I won't work for you. You know, right. it's as simple as that. I don't need somebody else, uh, you know, treating me as an idiot child. You're too dumb to figure this out. You're too, you know, you're too weak to handle it for yourself. Now, thank you very much. I'm capable of negotiating my own wages. And so is everybody. And, and it goes all the way towards the concept of health, individual health, families versus so-called public health, where, of course, the decisions will be made for you. If you disagree, well, you're you're promoting misinformation or malinformation. And, of course, now we're seeing more and more that the people who are promoting these so-called misinformation or malinformation were 100 percent right. And we knew we were right. We knew they were lying. We had the information in front of us and we got censored for it. You know, it was just ridiculous. Absolutely. Oh, tell us, tell us what you mentioned to David Knight about the Mustangs. I love this stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you can actually still buy uh, a classic Mustang, a 1965, 66 Mustang, literally buy a brand new Mustang that is identical in every respect. In fact, it's better than the 65 or 66 because it's hand built. There are companies that have acquired the rights to reproduce them in very small numbers. And that's how they get around the regulatory apparatus, which requires a mass market vehicle manufacturer to comply with all the rigmarole. Thanks for listening to Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. If you want to move to the free state and you're looking for some real estate, well, I know a guy who's really great. 
It's the Realtor Mark Warden. Now you can learn more about the awesome things happening here in New Hampshire in our march toward liberty in our lifetime. Our friends at Porcupine Real Estate are hosting a series of webinars to educate you on the expanded freedoms enjoyed by New Hampshire citizens. Reserve your seat today at move.freetalklive.com. Topics include gun freedom, medical freedom, and political freedom victories. They also have a couple on best practices for moving to the free state and finding housing. These webinars are super helpful and free to attend once you've registered at move.freetalklive.com. Visit their YouTube channel, Porcupine Real Estate, for videos from past presentations and sign up for upcoming webinars for free at move.freetalklive.com. Porcupineralestate.com